Good morning. This is Zechariah 4, 1 through 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not my might, nor my power, uh, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall come, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Audrey. Well, good morning again. We are spending the summer working our way through this really um, amazing book called uh, Zechariah in the Old Testament, but it's also really strange. It's a really bizarre book because a lot of it is... Uh, a collection of visions, these, these almost like dreamlike, trippy, bizarro scenes that are just kind of piled on top of each other. And so it's very uh, weird and uh, confusing. And so one of the things I love about this vision in particular that Audrey just read is that Zechariah himself has a hard time understanding what it is he's seeing and what in the world is going on in this book himself. I mean, look, look at... Um, uh, three different times, he asks this angel who's with him, who's kind of his tour guide, showing him all these bizarro things. Three different times, he says, wait, what is this? What, what am I looking at again? You see this in verse 4, verse 11, and verse 12. But what um, I think is really hilarious about this passage is verse 5. Uh, it says, then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, No. No, my Lord. Like, um, the angel's like, wait, I'm showing you all this weird stuff. You, you don't know what all this stuff means? And Zechariah's like, I, I got nothing. I got no clue here. He says, that, he says it again in verse 13 again, which is funny. But uh, so all that to say is if you're weirded out and confused by what is going on in this passage, you are in good company. The author of this book of the Bible is just as confused as you and I are. But here's what's good news about this is that uh, God explains what's going on in these visions and in this vision in particular. And, and here's kind of the basic point of this vision that we're going to look at this morning. Here's the point. God is determined to draw near to you. That's it. That's kind of what this weird thing is about, that God is determined to draw near, to draw close to you. And I'm going to spend just, just a couple minutes showing you where I get that from. Look, look at verse uh, 2. 
Zechariah is given this weird scene, this bizarro vision, and here it is. It says, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. So Zechariah sees this gold lampstand, which is the Hebrew word for menorah. And this is what, I mean, if you're picturing a menorah in your mind, this is what it would have been. It would have been a central trunk with three branches coming off of each side of it. So there's seven lights at the top. And there was a bowl on it that collected oil, which was used to provide the fuel for burning the lamps. And so this is just like a normal menorah. But what's weird about this one is that on each light, there are seven lips or seven spouts. So it's not just seven lights, it's 49 lights. So it's not just a menorah, it's a mega menorah. And um, what's, what's fascinating about this is that the menorah, the lampstand, would have been an item exclusively found in the temple. But if you might remember, if you might know, that in Zechariah's day, the temple had not been built yet. Just a, a number of decades before, the people of Israel had been invaded by this big nation called Babylon, and they destroyed the temple and destroyed the lampstands and captured a bunch of people and took them away. And then a number of decades later, they got released. And as they come back, they're rebuilding their society. But the temple is not rebuilt, which was a massive problem because the temple was the um, kind of cultural centerpiece for this society. This would, this would be like trying to envision Memphis with, without the Grizzlies or without barbecue. It's, it's like the, 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 the epicenter is gone. And so this is a big deal for, uh, for there not to be a temple. The reason why the temple was a big deal for this particular culture is because the temple is where people went to encounter God. It was where he dwelt. In fact, the language that's used throughout the Bible and even in this passage is that the temple was God's house. It's like where he lived. It was then this mysterious intersection of heaven and earth kind of coming together. And so in Zechariah's day, you got no temple, you got no lampstand, and yet now he sees Mega Menorah, which is this vision, this promise of the temple is going to come back and it's going to be rebuilt with more glory than what it was even before. That's verse 2. Verse 3. Uh, the vision keeps going, and now you have that this lampstand is situated between two olive trees, which I can't help but think of the show Between Two Ferns with uh, Zach Galifianakis. It's, 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 it's not between two ferns. It's between two olive trees. And you find out down in verse 12 that there are these golden pipes connected from the trees flow with, with gold oil flowing into the bowl. And so it's this image of this continual, endless stream of fuel for the, for the lamp. And so it's burning bright, and it's this image that uh, God's presence is just going to continually be pumped in endlessly, as it were. And that's kind of the vision. Mega menorah, olive trees, lots of oil coming in. Now, Zechariah doesn't know what in the world this is, so um, the angel starts to explain what's going on here, starting in verse 6. And he starts by explaining, starts to talk about this guy named Zerubbabel, which is really fun to say, Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the uh, governor at the time. He was kind of the main political leader. And the point that the angel starts to explain is that this guy, Zerubbabel, is going to finish building the temple. That's kind of the point. Look, look at uh, verse 7. I love this verse. It says, Who are you, O great mountain? 
before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Meaning there's all these obstacles, all these hardships for rebuilding this temple. It was like trying to cross this impassable mountain. You can't get over this mountain, but this verse is mocking the mountain and saying, who do you think you are, O mountain? You're going to become a plain, meaning there, there ain't no mountain high enough or valley low enough or river wide enough that's going to stop God from getting to you. That's kind of the, the point here, that God is determined to get to his people. Some of y'all caught that Martin, Marvin Gaye uh, reference there. But this is the point, is that God is so determined to be with his people, he says, nothing's going to stand in my way. No mountain's going to get in the way. Look at verse 7. It says, and he, Zerubbabel, shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The, the, the top stone was like the last stone that you would put in place. It's like the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle that you put in place, and everybody cheers, yay, like it's done, grace, grace to it. And then verse 9 makes this really explicit. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the big idea. And this is, in fact, what we know actually happened in history. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 6, that Zerubbabel finished building the temple. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of, there's a lot of other smaller details in this vision that I won't get into, but kind of the, the main big point is that God is declaring that the temple will be rebuilt. Meaning, God is so resolute on dwelling in the midst of his people. God is so determined to be with them. He said, I, I will stop at nothing. I don't, I'm not content with being removed and distant and far away. I want to dwell in the very midst, the very center of my people. I want to dwell with them. This is what he has in mind, communion with people and people to have communion with him. So I really want to look at this big idea really under two big headings, why this is good news, why communion with God is a big deal. And here's why, because communion with God is his design and it's his desire. That's kind of what the big headings I want to try to explore with you for the rest of our time, that communion with God is both his design and it's his desire. First, here's what I mean by saying that communion with God is his design, meaning I think this vision of a temple with his people shows you the type of relationship that God has in mind. When he thinks about how do I want to relate to human beings, the bedrock fundamental thing that he has in mind, the design of this relationship is withness communion. It's a relationship where we are with each other. And if you think about it, most people, even though that's God's design, most people don't relate to God in the same way. Let, let me give you a thought experiment. Let's just say, for some of you, you may have to do some adjusting, but let's just say you're in your uh, 20s, mid-20s, and you discover very randomly that you just inherited millions and millions of dollars. You didn't know that you, your, your grandparents were these secret oil tycoons, and you, you come into bukus of cash. Awesome. Exciting day for you. And uh, maybe a year or two later, you meet uh, someone that you think is awesome. You meet the, the, the person of your dreams, your soulmate, and you all fall in love, and, and you get married, and things are great. Awesome. You, things are working out really well for you in this thought experiment. And then... Um, 
Let's just say a year or so into your marriage, your spouse starts to get cold towards you. Things start to get rocky, and, and they decide one day at the middle of this big conflict that y'all are having that they, they storm out of the house, and right before they slam the door in your face and walk away from you forever, they say, the only reason I ever married you, the only reason that I love you is because I wanted to get my hands on that inheritance money, and when I found out that I couldn't get my hands on it, there's no, we're done. There's no point in relating to you anymore. And so they slam the door and they walk out of your life. Now, how would you feel in that moment? You'd feel devastated. You'd feel like, oh my God, you didn't love me for me? It was just a means to an end? You just wanted what you could get from me? Don't you realize that that is how God probably feels all the time? Because theoretically, God has this you know, treasure chest of blessing. He's God. He has all the stuff. And he can give you happiness. And he can give you comfort. And he can give you success. And he can give you Instagram followers. And he can make, he can make your, your life work out the way that you want it to work out. And so a lot, of, a lot of the time, people start to get religious because they want access to the treasure chest. Things are hard in life for everybody, and so people are like, okay, I'm going to come to God because I, I need help with this thing that I'm experiencing. I, I, I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with depression, whatever. I need him to fix that, or I, I want my circumstances to change. So-and-so is sick. I want them to feel better, or I'm sick, and I want to feel better, or, or this job situation is hard. I need this to work out, and so people tend to get religious and they come to God and they go to church or they pray or they sign up for a small group. They do all the religious stuff, but not to get God, but to get their hands on the treasure chest. I want the happiness. I want my circumstances to be different. I want, I want a better life. And what tends to happen is that people who begin to relate to God that way, which is most people, um, Circumstances either don't change in the way that they wanted them to, or new circumstances get created that are hard, or you continue to not feel the peace and the serenity that you thought you would feel. And so what ends up happening is most people just kind of punt the faith and walk away and say, you know, I don't really believe anymore. Or, you know, I tried Christianity. I tried it on. It didn't really work for me. And what they really mean is... I wanted to get my hands on the treasure chest, and God wouldn't let me touch it. And so we're like that greedy spouse, and we just leave when we didn't get what we wanted. But God is not interested in being a means to an end for us. He doesn't want to be a genie in a bottle that just exists to grant you the wishes of whatever life you think is going to be the most fulfilling. He wants to be the end. He wants to be the treasure, the point. He's not the means to an end. He is the end. And so you wonder, okay, how do I know that he is becoming precious to me where he's the thing that I want and not just, I'm just not just using him to get the things that I want? The way that you will really know is by looking at your prayer life. If you pray, when you pray. For most of us, myself included, I'll throw myself under the bus here. For most of us, when we pray, we relate to God in the same way that you relate to the uh, greeters at Walmart. 
You know those sweet kind of older people that wear the blue vests by the door at Walmart? You walk into Walmart and you acknowledge their presence. Hey, good morning, you know, good to see you. But then for the bulk of your trip, you're loading up your cart with what you want. Take this, I'll do that, I want this, I want that. And then you check out and, you know, as you're walking away to your car, you acknowledge their presence one more time. Thank you, good to see you, go in peace. And, uh, you, you know, you go about your business. Most of us, when we pray, we do it the same way. We show up. We acknowledge God's presence, dear God. And then for the bulk of our time, we're just loading up our carts. Change this. Can you fix this? Can you give me some more of this? Can you take away that? And then we acknowledge his presence one more time at the end. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. But I think what that shows you is that he's not the thing we want. Now, just to be clear, uh, God wants us to ask things of him. We even prayed this morning in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Like our needs matter. He wants us to bring our request to him. But the question is, is God simply useful? Or do you also find him beautiful? Do your prayers, whenever you pray, if you pray, do you have sustained stretches of time where you just enjoy being with him? Just enjoy being in his presence, thinking about his kindness, thinking about his goodness, thinking about his beauty. Just, just adoring the fact that you're with him. You know, it's fascinating. One, one of the primary images all throughout the Bible is to, to describe our relationship with him is not that he's a butler and we're the boss that just orders him around and gets to, you know, tell him, bring me stuff. But it's that of a marriage which is a really intimate metaphor. Because, you know, a marriage, a healthy, good marriage, is one in which um, you enjoy being around each other. You just enjoy spending time with each other. That's God's design. This is what he wants. This is when he thinks about how do I relate to people, I want to be with them. I want, I want them to adore me. I want them to know that I adore them. There was um, uh, someone that I was talking with recently that made um, some really terrible decisions with their life and have kind of effectively blown up their life. And every aspect of this person's life has been altered, changed, destroyed. That relationships with this person have been totally changed or gone away with completely. This person's opportunity for work and jobs and and money, all of that has been changed and, and different. And so I'm sitting down with this person and they're telling me all this. And I started to ask them, what if part of what God is up to with your story here is that he's stripping away all the things that you think are the prize in life so that you have nothing left but him and so that your heart begins to be trained that he's the prize because you keep thinking, well, the prize is, what if I get on the other side of all of this chaos and all this crisis and I can get back to a life with relationships and comfort and job and organization and control? And I was trying to tell this person, that's not the prize. The prize is God. And maybe God is stripping away everything so that you realize that, that he's the prize. And here's what this person told me. They said, that's a really crummy prize. I don't want that prize. That doesn't sound attractive to me. And I appreciate this person's honesty because I think deep down we feel the same way. We don't want God. We want what he can give us. 
We want money. We want power. We want sex. We want applause. We want lower gas prices. We want lower temperatures. We want lower grocery bills. That's what we want. We don't want God. He's God, give us what we want. But what you see with this vision is that the design that God has of how he relates to us is to be with us, where he becomes the prize. Now, here's the question, though. How do you get to a point where your heart is so reconfigured that he becomes the prize, that he becomes the thing that you actually want, and he's not just the means to the end? Well, to do that, we, we got to look at the second big idea, which is to see that communion is not just his design, but it's also his desire. And what I mean by that is that I think what this um, vision shows us is, is how determined God is in order to get in this relationship with you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. This happens to me sometimes. Have you ever had it when, when you're hugging somebody that you really love? Maybe it's your child or your spouse if you're married or, or a, a sibling or a, a close friend, just somebody that you love so much and you're squeezing them so tight and, you, and it feels like you, you can't get close enough to them. You know this feeling where you're, it's frustrating because it feels like there's a barrier blocking your heart from just absorbing into their heart. And it's like, we're, we're, I, I, maybe it, I realize that it sounds weird, but it's, it's um, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But uh, this feeling where, where we're so close and it's not close enough. It reminds me of um, old Death Cab for Cutie song for my millennials out there um, who uh, sing the song, I Need You So Much Closer. It's like that's the idea. I just, we're so close and it's not close enough. And I think that God feels the same way. If you look at this vision, if you look at the story of the Bible, it shows you that God is not content even being close he wants to get closer. So look at this vision. You, you have this, 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 God is so resolute. He is dead set. I'm going to get this temple in the midst of my people. I'm going to dwell in this house down the street from my people, and it's not close enough. And so years later, centuries later, he shows up in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to get even closer. In fact, when it's Christmas time, you know, we, we often refer to um, Jesus as this, this word, Emmanuel, which is the Hebrew word, God with us. It's God showing up, taking on flesh, and moving into our neighborhood, that being down the street from us in a temple wasn't close enough. He's got to be right next to us. In fact, um, there's this one scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus is walking by the actual temple that Zerubbabel built. And Jesus is telling these people that's with him, he says, um, tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll, I'll raise it up again. And they're like, what in the world are you talking about? That took decades to build. You're going to rebuild it in three days? And then there's a little note that John puts in parentheses that says, they didn't realize he was talking about his body. Meaning Jesus says, I'm the temple. I'm the fulfillment of what that temple was. God with us, well, guess what? Here I am, and God in the flesh is actually with you in person right here, right now. But even that wasn't close enough. It's one thing to have Jesus or have God's presence down the street. It's another thing to have him right next to you. But, but God, 
wants to get closer. And so Jesus, after he is crucified, after three days later, when he is raised up again and he has ascended into heaven, you know what he does? He pours out his spirit on his people, which means his spirit is his very presence come to indwell, not a building, but you, where the Bible says now that you're the temple. The church is now where God dwells. In fact, listen to this. This is insane if you think about it. This is Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 2 describing y'all. Here's what he says. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see this progression? Can't get close enough. Can't get close enough. Have to dwell inside of you. Have to be within you. That's how close God wants to get. And you think, okay, why? Why is God so committed to drawing that near, that close? Well, think about it like this. A couple of years ago, I saw this video that was on Twitter that was of this wedding that took place in the Philippines. And there was this massive tropical storm that had just blown through the day before or that morning. And so there was massive flooding in this area. And it was so sad because this is this, you know, this couple's wedding day. And they're interviewing the bride right before the wedding, and she's in her you know, makeup and her dress, and, and here's what she says to the camera. She says, even if it floods or rains, nothing can stop me. And so there's this video from their wedding in a church, kind of like this, only there's about a foot of water just sitting in the church. It's flooded the whole church, and so just imagine a foot of water brown, murky water just standing, you know, right there. And, and there's a, you know, a congregation of, of people out there that are just sitting there in their you know, suits and dress with their, with their, with, you know, water up to their shins, just sitting out there. And there's a string quartet and water's kind of, you know, slushing around and they're up here playing. And then the doors open in the back and there's the bride in her white dress with her, you know, on her dad's uh, arm and she's sloshing her way <laughs> to the front, and it's just this, it's this amazing picture of just this unstoppable, aggressive love. Nothing is going to stop me from getting to the one that I love. And you see that same picture with God in this passage. Nothing is going to stop me. No mountain is going to stop me. No sin is going to stop me. Your your doubt doesn't stop me. Even a cross is not going to stand in the way between me and you. I'm going to wade into hell and back to get this close to the very people that I love. God was not just willing to knock down a mountain. God was willing to climb up a mountain and be crucified on top of it. Why in the world was Jesus willing to trade in worship for mockery? Why was he willing to trade in validation for rejection and, and give away power for, for, for weakness and trade in comfort for sorrow? Why would he give away his very life? You know why? Because you're the treasure. 
You're his treasure. You're the prize. You're the one that was worth God giving up everything in order to get close to. When you realize you are loved like that, you know what that begins to do? That begins to reconfigure your heart. That begins to move the needle a little bit where you say, oh my goodness, maybe God is more precious than I thought he was. That, that compels me to want to just be with him more because once you realize that you are his treasure, he starts to become your treasure. That's how it works. You might even sing this song that we're about to sing here in a second, Be Thou My Vision, that goes like this. The third verse says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Heed is the word that means uh, to take notice of, to pay attention to. This person's saying, I'm not going to even pay attention to wealth, to applause, to followers online. It's great if I get it, but I'm not going to focus on it. And then he says, thou mine inheritance. God, you are my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. May that be the song of your heart, and may that be the song of mine as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you that um, you speak to us in uh, ways that are <laughs> strange and funny and bizarre and yet clear as well, that you are determined and committed to being with the very people that you love, even people like us in all of our loneliness, all of our shame, all of our baggage, none of, that, none of that is an obstacle for you. None of that is a deterrent for you. None, none of that is um, something that repels you away from us, but draws you even more aggressively towards us. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would give us hearts that see you as not just useful but beautiful, hearts that enjoy sitting in your very presence, to enjoy simply being with you. Father, only you can uh, so restructure our hearts that we would find you precious. So would you do that? Would you change my heart? Would you change our hearts together? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.